Welcome to Micro College. Um, today on the podcast, we are honored to have as a guest Lucien Dante Lazar. Lucien has been several times now one of the visiting instructors for Thoreau College programs. Um, Lucien is is a lifelong Waldorf student. Um, he grew up in Chicago, Illinois. He's an interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary artist whose praxis is founded in the intersections of art, science, and spirituality. He received his BA from Bard College, his MFA from the California College of the Arts, and is currently working on his PhD in the Philosophy, Cosmology, and Consciousness program at California Institute of Integral Studies. His dissertation will concern the pedagogy of spiritual development through the diversity of the arts. Welcome, Lucien. Thank you, Jacob. That was a beautiful mouthful. <laughs> Interdisciplinary. <laughs> yeah. Should practice that one. <laughs> um, so here on Micro College, we like to ask, start off by asking um, our guests where they were around the, the age of our college students. So think back to when you were 20 years old. You're, you're 28 now. Just 28. Important kind of hinge yeah. in one's biography. Um, so not that long ago. Think about um, when you were 20 years old, where were you? What were you doing? And what was what was excellent about that time, what you were doing? And, and what, what was lacking? So when I was 20 and 21, I was actually writing and recording my first studio album. Uh, and I was just signed to a record label in L.A., that kind of actually formed around the impulse to try to help me become a pop star, uh -huh. which obviously everyone knows came true. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, and at the same time in my art practice, so that was my music practice, but in my art practice, I had just made a series called Amadama, A-M-A-D-D-A-M-A. Mm -hmm. -A -A. And it was a pretty epiphanic moment in my life in the context of art because I, for the first time, really saw how to merge form and color so that both of those artistic qualities were able to kind of access a spiritual dimension of consciousness. And one of the pieces from that period is actually in the show that I'm doing here on July 7th in two days. Uh-huh. So that's the, the artistic impulse that was happening at the time. Um, an album, sort of this rich self-portraiture in art that mm -hmm. was bringing art into a conceptual, spiritual context. And interpersonally, I just got into a relationship with my first relationship that lasted four years. Um, so yeah, it was a huge, it was a huge <laughs> year. <laughs> And had you had you gone off to school after after high school, or, or how did you end up in that studio in LA? Yeah, so I was actually in New York at Bard College, uh -huh. and they the, the label discovered me on Facebook. So I didn't actually move to LA until I graduated Bard College in 2016, uh -huh. and then I moved to Long Beach slash LA. So um, you had completed your undergraduate degree at that point. Um, I. I actually completed it, I think, when I was 22. Okay. Yeah. So, so in the, the midstream. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, so, so tell us about Bard College. I mean, I, I don't know that much about Bard, but I know it shows up frequently as an innovator in higher education mm. um, in the sense of, um, of having especially diverse campuses in addition to, to the core campus there in the Hudson Valley. Uh, they operate a, a liberal arts college in Berlin. Um, there's a Bard College at Simons Rock, which has a, a younger than typical you know, sort of uh, non-traditional student body. They're also now using the term micro-college. One of the other uses this term for programs that are targeted towards people who would who would generally have a hard time doing college. Mm-hmm. People in prisons, um, you know, young mothers with 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 nursing babies, um, just otherwise people who are in systems that that don't allow them to go and spend four years at a liberal arts campus. But yeah. what was your experience there? So interesting, you bring up Simon's Rock. I came from Simon's Rock. So uh-huh. I, I actually left Chicago Waldorf after 10th grade, went to Simon's Rock for two years, took a semester off, and then went to Bard. Um, So, okay, explain Simon's Rock for us. Yeah, so Simon's Rock is an anomaly, (laughs) first of all. Um, I think there was like a 15-year-old there when I was there, which seemed very young. Uh, But Simon's Rock had about 500 students, and it was basically composed of um, people of the age of 10th, through 12th grade. Mm-hmm. And some students would go on to complete their undergraduate degree there, but most of them would transfer after two years of getting their associates, which is what I did. At Simon's Rock, I met an amazing art teacher, Jacob Fossum, and he really helped me for the first time uh, kind of see the potential of my work as a conceptual artist. Mm-hmm. Because in Waldorf, it was very... Uh, spiritual, working with color impulses, working with more of a a sensory experience of art and not really thinking about concepts, which I think was great. Mm -hmm. But when you travel up in education, you kind of enter into the conceptual sphere, Mm -hmm. which Simon's Rock was the first invitation into for me. Uh, And I kind of actually entered through that, through awakening to the uh, traumas that I encountered through being gay, mm-hmm. it, just in society and, and f- family context. So Jacob Foster really helped me kind of like unpack those traumas in the context of art. Mm-hmm. So um, that was really uh, rich in developing my conceptual life, working with these complex identity questions through art. Um, so then I moved, I, I transferred to Bard, and these identity questions really continued, but started entering into the sphere of um, concepts of materials, like how can I work with various natural materials in the context of identity and not mm-hmm. just identity, but how does identity actually start to like breathe out into the literal fabric of matter beyond my body? So you say materials, you're talking mm-hmm. about media. Media, yeah. So I... Um, met Jeffrey Gibson, who's a very well-known artist today, a good friend of mine, and he he saw um, that I had this impulse to work with natural fibers since I was working with those in Waldorf ever since I was a child. But I kind of had, had forgotten about them or put them off to the side when I was at Simon's Rock to focus on graphite realism. Um, and Jeff is a Native American artist, mm-hmm. so he has these... Uh, these natural materials haven't been sort of um, ostracized from his culture like they have from, from a lot of mm-hmm. um, more Western or white cultures, even though they're, they've been a part of white cultures for 
millennia. Mm-hmm. Um, so he kind of helped me step into my fiber artist identity and <clears throat> really blasted open the door for like, how can art be a pedagogy of self-development through identity? Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so that that was like the most amazing experience I had at Bard. And unfortunately, Jeff was really the only professor who really supported me in my work. Mm-hmm. A lot of other faculty found it very challenging and couldn't really step into it. But Jeff was such a supporter through and through. Um, he told me, like, I remember this moment where I was just really devastated by the way my work was being received by my peers and the faculty during my my um, my thesis. Mm-hmm. And he told me, uh, don't worry if people like are having these problems with your work. The most important thing for you to do is keep doing what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And that was just like a blessing because in the school, he actually had the most authority on the problems that people were seeing in my work. Um, so he, he was actually the right person to tell me that. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm really happy he did because I have continued with it. And um, yeah. Yeah. So that, that's a striking story uh, for a variety of reasons. I mean, one is that you, you seem to have found a really key mentor. Yeah. Right? You know, that, that connection with, with a figure, an older person, a person who's, who's, a, who's got experience in some sort of field, but also who sees you, yeah. sees your work, um, seems like something that is, can, be, can happen in the best possible scenario on a, on a college campus or in an educational yeah. program of some kind. Yeah, and, and it was life-changing. Like, mm-hmm. Jeff, we've kind of migrated. I mean, many years ago, we moved on from mentor, uh, like, student to friends, mm-hmm. peers, in a way. Um, but he, he really kind of accessed every single aspect of my life at that time. He helped me with my sexuality. He helped me with my art. He helped me with, um, you know, my ideas about the world. Mm-hmm. And without him, I would not have survived at Bard because mm-hmm. I really needed someone who was kind of so generous with their time. Mm-hmm. I was kind of uh, demanding in a not a conscious way, but I, <laughs> I did need that. So <laughs> he stepped up to the plate and. Yeah. And, and gave it to me. And was able to do that. Yeah, is there is there anything that you could see that facilitated that, or is that in spite of structures that were there? Um, it was kind of in spite of structures that were there. Uh, I mean, in grad school, you always talk about how you go to grad school because of the faculty. Mm-hmm. But in undergrad, you kind of go to undergrad to get a degree. And I didn't know anything about Jeffrey Gibson when I went there. Mm-hmm. Um, but... <laughs> in the first class I, I had with him, it was called, mm, I actually forget the name of it, but basically I made this like 13 foot tall cardboard penis. <laughs> and I just thought it was like, I was like free, like in art, like it was like the biggest thing I'd ever made. And it just like came out of nowhere. I don't know what happened, but he, I think he noticed like, oh, this kid actually has a lot of passion and capacity <laughs> to like step outside the box and um, takes a mature instructor <laughs> to give you know a thoughtful critique of a piece like that. Probably. Yeah, and I think yeah. he also he found me funny. Yeah, like, who, who, what the hell? <laughs> um, so, yeah, it, it kind of like evolved into a friendship and a and a obviously a professor student relationship. Um, and that's like that's actually what I've looked for in all my institutions. 
um, which has been a little bit different from most students. Like one of the things I learned through my um, relationship with Jeff was like, I'm a type of student that looks for deep, intimate relationships with my friends and my faculty. And I'm not really, um, I don't really learn well if I'm not like meeting an individuality really close face to face on an interpersonal level, even in, even though it's in an academic context. Mm -hmm. And I think Jeff just had the capacity to allow that to happen while still remaining professional. Um, and that impulse has actually carried through to my master's degree at California College of the Arts and my current PhD degree at um, California Institute of Integral Studies. I can't say that either. <laughs> um, and so like I actually, Jeff kind of showed me that really important aspect of how I learn, mm -hmm. which is selecting one faculty member, um, maybe two if that's like possible, but usually it's only one, and forming a really close friendship with them and then understanding the academia through that intimacy really. Mm -hmm. um, which I think is the reason why I've um, liked working with Thoreau College mm -hmm. um, because I was able to kind of be that intimate, um, you know, expression to my students, even though I wouldn't, I didn't develop like one-on-ones necessarily, but it was a small class mm -hmm. style with um, the freedom to do very creative, innovative work that touched on all these different aspects of personality, um, thought, mm -hmm. uh, relationship, craft. And I think that's really where my intersection is. Micro College is recorded in the broadcast studios of WDRT Viroqua, 91.9 FM, Driftless Community Radio, on Main Street in Viroqua, Wisconsin. Thanks to Jim and all the folks at WDRT for the support of Thoreau College and the Micro College podcast. So could you talk a bit more about your, your graduate experience and, and what you did and, and yeah, how these, these kind of themes have been emerging, you know, have followed through? Yeah, um, so... At California College of the Arts, uh, that was actually the most challenging institution for me, not because of, um, basically it was because of the institution of contemporary art mm -hmm. grad school, which is really kind of obsessed with criticism. And uh, the world is obsessed with criticism today, actually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, contemporary art grad schools I have found um, they they obsess over the critical concept and they can get lost in the warmth and sort of like the warmth of thinking and the warmth of ideas. And one of the dangers in obsessing over this critical conceptual life in the context of physical artworks is that you can very easily disembody your ideas from reality. Mm -hmm. So everything starts to become this sort of um, clinical perception of reality in art. And the artworks really become cold. Um, and, and the thoughts about them become cold as well. And I wish I had a better word for cold, but um, maybe that can provide an intuitive feeling mm -hmm. for it. So that was a very challenging aspect. And um, the, the challenges that people saw in my work from undergrad carried over into grad school. But I, I once again met a few faculty members who, although they, they saw the challenges, they, they were also really fascinated and they were really selfless 
um, my my advisor, um, Josh Fought, uh, he he's an incredible artist, also a fiber artist, and very different from me. And he was nevertheless able to um, kind of open a door to just try to let me explore um, things that related to his own work, but were essentially completely different. Um, so we were both working in queerness and fiber, uh, but I was working from a very esoteric perspective and he was working from a more conceptual cultural perspective maybe. And um, he allowed me to uh, explore the pedagogy of craft but pushed me to really conceptualize it to a really fine degree. And in my MFA studies, my whole art practice actually completely changed from it at Bard. It was really like this explosion, this euphoria of all these different materials and colors and textures. And that carried over to the first semester of my MFA. But then after the first semester, I had kind of like a, a, a an art crisis because mm -hmm. of all the criticism I was getting. And um, I started studying anthroposophy and Joan of Arc um, because I, I needed courage. My mom mm -hmm. suggested that Joan of Arc would be a great courage classic person. Um, and then all of the color kind of disappeared, sorry, from my work. And um, I just started using like cream, cream colors <laughs> um, and really focusing on natural wool um, and silk and wood and form mm -hmm. and uh, introducing performance or what I call passage art experiences of music into my artwork. Um, so I think the thing that that really happened at um, California College of the Arts was the conceptual rigor that makes contemporary art education very cold mixed with anthroposophy which I completely self-studied there. That wasn't given to me by the school. Mm -hmm. That combination of the, the really profound warmth and living thought of anthroposophy and the incredibly profound rigor of conceptual thought in contemporary art, that, that mergence birthed a new artistic practice for me. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I, I cannot imagine my life without going to California College of Arts, even though it was a challenging experience. Hey, so you, you were able to, to craft that experience in a sense by, by combining those elements. Yeah. It was given and what you were bringing from your own, your own study and your own life. Totally. Yeah. And again, is there something about a context that, would, that facilitates or hinders that? Right? It's, I mean, one of the things we're interested in here is design of mm -hmm. programs, as I know is, is part of your, your PhD research as well. Right? Yeah. How do you create a way? Because people will bring their own experiences their own insights their own intuitions into their into their life as a student and you want to encourage that and create space for it so was there something that that helped that to happen there the personal relationships for sure um i mean the whole second year of my mfa which is when covid actually hit uh -huh. like the the latter half of that um i had transitioned my my art practice from making work to actually doing body work on my faculty and peers because I, I saw that I had a long, I had this trajectory of a project I needed to fulfill. And the majority of that project actually existed in the context of what I call spiritual body work. Um, 
So uh, I think because of my advancement review, which was at the end of my first year, mm-hmm. because the faculty saw that I had integrity and, um, and, and capacity in what I was striving for, they kind of opened up the possibility of me engaging in a, a very non-traditional way with them by actually touching their bodies and being like a um, striving to be a healer in, a, in the context of a, of a contemporary art program. Um, hmm. So basically, yeah, for, for many, many months, the only artwork I was doing was, or the only work I was doing was inviting faculty who consented and other students into my studio to experience a bodywork session. And then in the context of that section of that session, I would sort of ask um, the the um, patients, I guess, to draw figurative forms that were inspired out of this bodywork session. And then I was going to um, make those forms that they drew into uh, tapestries and metamorphose those tapestries with the forms in them into music. Mm-hmm. So I could then basically sing back to these people who had given me their their gestures of healing to into music but passing through physical art um and that's a very i I know um some of the faculty members they said no they were like Mm -hmm. that's just like too personal that's too intimate right so pretty pretty like boundaries that our (laughs) culture holds pretty strongly there (laughs) there was like that was not okay basically not i mean i have a, a good friend who's a faculty member there who um they they supported it, but they just didn't want to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. And then um, Josh, he was uncomfortable with it, but interested in it, and and wanted to do what he could to help me, you know, fulfill what I what I saw as an important artistic education. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of selfless on his part to try to like accommodate that, um, especially because he was one of the faculty who who saw the benefit and boundaries in, in, in a traditional sense mm-hmm. between um, student and faculty. So I think that the thing that made my evolution as an artist possible at, at California College of the Arts was the fact that I, um, I was trusted to a certain degree by my faculty to guide my own practice while also holding me to the um, demands of a contemporary art education, which really requires you to conceptualize every single element of your work. Mm-hmm. I felt at least that's what they were asking of me. And what that allowed for me to do was um, it not only allowed for my art to enter into a new paradigm that was so important for me, but it also allowed for my thinking capacity to refine itself. Um, and I actually, oddly enough, I don't think I would have been able to understand anthroposophy if it wasn't for my education at California College of the Arts hmm. because of the conceptual rigor. And was it something, were you having to explain, introduce people to anthroposophy there in order to, to do this? All the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think maybe that's a good point to do this. Um, one of the reasons we're really excited to have you you here, um, Lucien, is to introduce our audience to, to anthroposophy. Um, and uh, yeah, I think in your particular practice, especially in the arts and in, in thinking about pedagogy for, for young adults, um, for adult people um, in general, how, how would you introduce a person who's never, who's just hearing the word for the first time to anthroposophy? 
Well, literally, anthroposophy means um, divine wisdom of the human being. So um, anthropos, human, Sophia, wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, so anthroposophy was kind of inaugurated by Rudolf Steiner, who's an Austrian um, esotericist and uh, a polymath or a polyglot. I'm not sure what the difference is. <laughs> the poly- word polymath is, is uh, it's a great word that I think, yeah, basically means a person who's really good at a bunch of stuff, right? Great. That's Steiner. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he, um, he was born in 1861 and died in 1925. And um, he is the founder of Waldorf Education of Biodynamic Farming, um, Eurythmy, which is a um, essentially a cognitive movement art that well, there's just a whole like a whole cosmos in that. Um, he founded new forms of architecture. Uh, he, um, and, yeah, and he founded uh, uh, a medical paradigm. Yes, um, economics. Exactly. All kinds of yeah, a polymath. <laughs> so, so many different things that um, yeah have inspired a lot of a lot of aspects of culture today that aren't aware of being inspired by mm-hmm. um, what, what he's brought. Uh, so. So I, of course, went to Waldorf and therefore lived in a sort of anthroposophical ethos from the time I was born. But um, you don't teach anthroposophy at Waldorf. You um, you benefit from anthroposophy at Waldorf. So when I was um, at California College of the Arts and I was really like suffering from just this crippling um, like confusion around like how am I to move forward in my art practice if if I'm getting so much critique and sometimes hatred mm-hmm. um, around it. So my mom, she was like, my mom has studied anthroposophy since maybe before I was born, yeah. And she was like, oh, well, you should study Joan of Arc because um, she she's this like herald for not only the epoch that we're living in right now, which Center calls the consciousness soul, mm-hmm. but um, <clears throat> she also was like a herald for what it means to be um, autonomous in courage and initiative. Um, a lot of, if you research her life, a lot of the um, tactics she utilized in her trials um, were kind of about a shift in the relationship of the individual to God mm-hmm. and how the individual, uh, as an individual, could actually have a personal relationship with God outside of the church. Um, and that was just one of the things that jo- Joan of Arc brought. Mm-hmm. But um, so I started studying Joan of Arc and uh, in Joan of Arc's biography, the Archangel Michael is a very important figure for her. She had visions of him, and he basically guided her whole mission. Um, and Rudolf Steiner has a lecture series called The, um, the Mission of Archangel Michael, or or The, the School of Mar- Archangel Michael. And uh, studying Joan of Arc led me to this lecture series. Mm-hmm. Um, because, of course, my mom, as an anthroposophist, she's like, you know, interested in giving me the opportunity to also <laughs> study Steiner because he's so um, infinite in terms of his generous amount of knowledge, basically. Um, and so just, just to remind you, you're, you're 22, 23 years old at this point? At this time, I'm actually 25. 25. Yeah, okay. this is 2019. Right. So just to emphasize, you've come out of a, you know, you went went through Waldorf School for many years, grew up in an anthroposophical household. Yeah. Right. And and this is the moment that you're connecting with this, this yes. kind of inspiration. And a few years prior, actually, when I was 18, actually many years prior, 
um, I had picked up this book, Theosophy by Steiner, which I'm reading right now. Um, and I tried to read it and I just had no idea what was going on. Like I was, I was like, this is so interesting, but I had no idea what I was reading. Mm-hmm. Um, so I couldn't read it, but I did end up studying it. And within the week of studying this lecture series on Michael, um, uh, I, my life changed and, and this coincided actually with the change of my art practice. Um, and basically ever since then I have been studying uh, Steiner's writing for, you know, very intensively, and it's, I brought it into every everything I do, um, and everything I think. Um, and, and I I think as a as a person who studies Steiner, which can also be called an anthroposophist, um, ideally the relationship to anthroposophy is constantly evolving, mm-hmm. and ideally it brings you into deeper association with the world and your and your personal relationships and everything ideally it doesn't distance you from it even though it's a very esoteric study um so right now anthroposophy is really kind of um it's living in an intuitive aspect for me it's not like it's not a sort of doctrine at all Mm -hmm. it's um it's almost like a, a soul nourishment that the more I study it, the more I enter into a closer relationship with myself and the more I can um, feel confident and secure in my path in, in life. <laughs> and it, it's not really about, um, yeah, I mean, other spiritual leaders are kind of leaders in that they have a, a doctrine that they you know give to others. Mm-hmm. But Steiner was really unique in that he, he, what he most importantly gave was the ability to study the spirituality of logic, and um, how logic can become an experience, a um, a spiritual experience, mm-hmm. and so bringing bringing uh, the spirituality of logic into my work, whether it's music, art, spiritual body work. Um, art therapy, teaching, poetry, philosophy, all these different things. Anthroposophy is most beneficial for me in that it gives me a sense of logic. And that's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's ma- that's a great phrase, the spirituality of logic. I think we'll repurpose that for the cool. purposes. <laughs> <laughs> Do it. Yeah, I think, you know, like as with microcolleges, um, I think anthroposophy um, – is challenging for some folks in the sense that it's difficult to categorize. Yeah. Right? Is it is it a religion, a spiritual path, a philosophy, a an ethic, an, an aesthetic? Right? There's all kinds of different ways you might might um, talk about it. Um, and uh, you know, a, a spirituality of logic. That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's characteristic of our of our contemporary culture, modern culture, and it really plays out really strongly in higher education that there is a this sort of wall of separation really between spiritual matters and and everything else, right? You might be, you know, it's fine for a person to go to church or to have a have a meditative practice or something like that on, you know, on their own time, but then, you know, when you're in class or you're at work or something like that, that's 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 different. Um, that's a different category of life. And uh, so when when, you know, when there's a, there's a situation where you are trying to to incorporate spirituality or just even keep in mind recognize that dimension of reality in a in a curriculum let's say in a college um, 
that that can become challenging. How to talk about that even? How to explain what you're doing? Um, so as you're as you're thinking about you know pedagogy, right? This design of curriculum for young adults. I mean, how do you how do you wrestle with that? How do you um, you know, recognize this important dimension of what you're doing, spirituality and and anthroposophical insights, with with a real respect for the the inner freedom for the for this uh, very private, in a sense, space that that we've come to think of as the spiritual zone of our society? Yeah, <clears throat> that's an amazing question. Um, it So it brings me to, well, my class experience at Throw. Um, Throw has been amazing because it's given me an opportunity to try out my pedagogy in the context of a pedagogy that's already, you know, a sister to, to that. Um, and maybe could you describe what you've done? So, yeah. listen, you've been part of um, our last two years of programs, the the uh, the fall of 2020, um, our uh, semester program in the spring of 2021. There was a whole series of, of workshops you did with uh, an elective group of students, and then throughout the past, throughout the metamorphosis year, which has just completed, you were your regular visitor there. So, could you describe some of the some of the work that you've done with our students? Yeah. So. My work with the students has centered around the idea of metamorphosis. <laughs> um, and uh, basically what I've done is offered exercises that uh, synthesize art, self-knowledge, social relationship, um, courage in, in presence, uh, yeah, and and how actually the synthesis of these various um, aspects of reality actually can build us into a whole human being, or a human being that experiences a wholeness of self. Um, and uh, I think that this is why um, anthroposophy really works with what I'm offering, and and why it works with what with Thoreau because there's a there's an intersection of a lot of different things that are um, seen as co-creative. So art is not separate from um, from morality, and morality is not separate from social relationship mm -hmm. and from economics and all these different things. They come together as one whole because they are one whole. Mm -hmm. And the moment we start to dissociate various aspects of reality from each other that's the that's like our first error basically because they're not dissociated so it's a powerful tool however yes it is a very powerful tool right i mean i'm thinking about the the critique like the critical aspect of your your graduate education right yeah. you can look at something as a separate yourself from it whether it's an artwork or whether it's an organism or a social situation mm -hmm break it into its component parts and 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 analyze them in a yes. way right that's the characteristic mm -hmm. kind of move of our whole of our whole civilization right and it's it's powerful in a lot of ways but also it's it's missing something important yes and and i think it's it's missing the human being mm -hmm. it's um <clears throat> you know one of the one of the um, first things that i thought was just so inspiring about um anthroposophy was <clears throat> that Steiner says that the, the he says something like the human being is intuition, like in our identity, our spiritual reality, we are a being of intuition. We're like a thought in the spiritual world, and and we're basically intuition walking around Earth. 
So <clears throat> when you think about intuition, um, you, you kind of see how it um, flows. It, it's the fabric of everything. It's the lifeblood, the spiritual substance or, or substrate, that kind, substrate that kind of fills all um, matter. It's it's an um, invisible force. And to, to see the human individuality as that, as an intuitive, invisible being that is not only living on um, Earth, but also able to um, sort of uh, permeate all other objects with thinking. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really profound because it shows that the human being, when we actually a- access that that spiritual part of the human being is the synthesis of this reality. It's not, it's not like we are some foreign alien coming to earth and ruining it, but our spiritual reality is actually the synthesis of this whole earth context, this this earth realm. Mm -hmm. And the closer we get into touch with our spiritual individuality, with the core of the human being, the more we actually experience the rest of the world becoming illumined with knowledge, mm-hmm. not um, concepts, but with with um, uh, pure knowledge. Like the yeah. the knowledge of a table is actually inherent in the material and the form. There's something in the nature of reality of the universe that that desires to be known. Yeah, right. That it's it's not fully realize until it is known and it's it is human beings distinctively who can do the knowing exactly engage in that activity and that's not arbitrary like it's not arbitrary that we that we have the capacity to think about things it it means that thought is wisdom is permeating everything and we actually um like wisdom permeating all objects we can start to permeate objects with wisdom in us and that that um that does create the sort of love of all these disparate parts of reality it it joins them into one whole so i think that a pedag- the pedagogy that i'm striving for in my phd um which has just been the most incredible experience the most incredible educational experience in my life um because of once again one one professor primarily um is is a pedagogy that looks into the mystery of synthesis and metamorphosis. Mm-hmm. So how can I take, um, in, for, for my, my PhD specifically, I'm working with all the arts. So, I mean, a lot of the arts, poetry, um, painting, drawing, music, um, spiritual scientific research, uh, essay writing, spiritual body work, movement, architecture. Mm-hmm. I'm bringing, trying to bring all these things together as a um, curricular activity and seeing how um, through the craft of these things, uh, they can actually, through the, through the synthesized craft of them and the way they metamorphose into each other, how we can actually witness the human being at work in that and then thereby develop into ourselves. The Driftless Folk School, located in the beautiful rolling hills and valleys of southwest Wisconsin, is a community of lifelong learners dedicated to cultivating personal and cultural resilience through hands-on educational experiences. The Driftless Folk School offers classes in agriculture, land stewardship, natural history, folk arts and crafts, herbalism, wilderness skills, and more, 
For further information on the Driftless Folk School, visit us at driftlessfolkschool.org on the World Wide Web. Yeah, this is an insight that, that gives a really high purpose to, to the task of education, right? That's, that's you know, to know, to know the world, mm -hmm. right, is, is, is one of the reasons that we're here, right? Easy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so your, your, your work, maybe you could be a bit more concrete. What sort of things did you do with students here in the, in the courses you've done in the last couple of years? Right. So I, I took them through drawing exercises. Um, so say, say we would start off the class with uh, meditation and um, the meditation would involve a certain visualization. Um, out of that visualization, they would um, draw something. And then out of that drawing, they might um, create a phrase or a poem. And then they might give that poem to someone else. And that person might um, make their poem into a drawing. And then they might show that both their drawings to each other and sort of experience how the poem was a bridge between these two different artworks. Um, and then maybe, maybe at the end of the class, um, people would look at each other's drawings and sing out of those drawings in, in harmonies and allow one of the students to experience, well, what is my drawing in tone? So in some so ways... That, that strikes me as, as a really characteristic move of your, your teaching, Lucien, yeah. is that you, you take one medium, let's say drawing, and then you say, okay, let's... What would this be in tone, right? Yeah. To, to, to switch media as a way to, to go deeper into the material and to whatever you're exploring. Well, what I realized um, really at the beginning of my PhD, actually maybe even before this at, at California College of the Arts, was how um, the principle of metamorphosis is, is, um, is not, it's, it's present, but it's not visible. So, um, but also it's omnipresent. So for example, um, you know, the way a painting will relate to, the way the, the history of painting relates to the history of music, that is definitely a reality. They, you know, they evolve together. Mm -hmm. But we can't see like threads, literal threads in the air tying this painting to that musical work. So we have to kind of conclude there's an there's a invisible metamorphic cosmic structure that is unifying um, all of these dis disparate parts of reality, and um, nonetheless, it's invisible. So how can we actually become aware of that invisible structure? And how can we unify our thought with it? Because one of the things that is um, that I've learned through studying Steiner is that it's not enough to think about things, we have to think in things. Hmm. And we can actually think in the structures of metamorphosis. And one of the ways we can do that is by through our own initiative, metamorphosing a poem into a drawing. Like, how do we actually do that? Well, we have to engage will, and we have to um, engage a certain type of consciousness that essentially comes from the spiritual world. It's not something that is guided by a, a doctrine of education or some exoteric you know, law. It's really an inner phenomena that's taking place. And w when we, um, you know, evolve other art mediums out of certain previous mediums and we do it enough, we start to actually feel comfortable living in the invisible and we can think out of that sphere and not just rely on, you know, what's in front of our physical senses, which is, which is very, you know, last, it's like the last 
<laughs> occurrence of that um, that whole spiritual process. So I think it it's logical that um, it's beneficial to have consciousness um, in in multiple spheres of reality and not just the one that is is the final product. Yeah, it's a, it's can be by my observation. Yeah, it's, it's really liberatory, right? As I mean, Steiner describes his goal, the goal of Waldorf education of anthroposophy as as free human beings, mm -hmm. right? This this realization of of, of freedom uh, in in practical sense, and and this ability to to think flexibly, yep. to, to to change the media, to think in different forms, and ultimately to think outside, you know, you know, outside of the material world in a way is is one of our great kind of projects in in this time, right? Totally. Yeah, and and in terms of um, like how all that relates to a very practical social development. Um, I, I experienced a lot in my class how um, students would, they would come to conclusions or they would, they would come to questions about spiritual matters. Um, even if they, you know, proclaimed, I don't believe in spirituality <laughs> <laughs> because out of these exercises, um, which are formed through an intuitive logic, um, there's sort of like a spiritual logic running through the metamorphic structure that dips down into these material forms. Um, if you experience yourself participating in the unfolding of that logic through these art forms, you, you just come to questions that are illumined with spiritual logic. And um, how that benefits our social relationships is profound because if if the real human being is not the physical body in front of us, but actually a spiritual um, karma, a spiritual biography that's taking place, and very multidimensional and infinite, um, it's we basically have to acknowledge that we have to acknowledge that we have to um, be interested in the invisible of the person in order to really approach them as a human being. Otherwise, we're going to be approaching them as an object, mm -hmm. and that's not acceptable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, one thing I wanted to ask you about, Lucien, is that what you're you're describing here is is challenging on many levels. I think in the way that you describe it, you challenged your yeah. instructors or at, at the different colleges you're at. I think also, you know, you're you're bringing materials that are. You know, and activities and just insights that are that are are challenging in various ways. And Thoreau College, so micro college, very small group, but they are also coming from many different backgrounds. You know, many of them have no relationship to Waldorf anthroposophy or to any spiritual path necessarily. Like many people in our society, there are also many of them who don't necessarily think of themselves as artists or have a right. practice in in any particular medium. Um, yet my observation would be that you you found a way to really connect with with all of those students. So I'm wondering about how you approach that. You know, bringing what you're bringing. You know, both technically. But also, you know, conceptually, you're asking sometimes people to do things that seem kind of strange. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, Thoreau has been so important for me because, first of all, it was my first teaching job, and um, I, at the very beginning of teaching at Thoreau, I would prepare my lessons through meditation. I would, I came to this practice where I would imagine the lesson unfolding, uh, and I would experience in my heart how the metamorphoses of the various art forms would would work like what how are they logical and so i would come to the classroom in person and i would 
basically invite this schedule to play out. And eventually, it, it, it was working very well, but eventually I realized that this imagination preparation was leading towards just an, a purely intuitive class structure. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, if I can imagine them ahead of time and then they work during the classroom, why can't I just bring that imaginative capacity into the classroom and not, quote unquote, prepare? So what my work at Thoreau evolved into was um, hyper presence. Mm-hmm. And I would enter into the classroom not knowing at all what I was going to do. And I would just really listen to the students, like invisibly listen. What what can happen today that is going to be beneficial? And um, the thing that started happening was the lessons became much more successful because mm-hmm. I could tell by how the students were reacting. They were um, just really bright. Their eyes were glittering. And I would learn all these things I didn't know. And it started to fulfill what I was actually trying to achieve in my um, PhD work, which is a pedagogy that's actually arising out of the individualities of the students, mm-hmm. which I, I th- I'm pretty sure Thoreau has has writing on and, mm-hmm. and interest in that. Um, so Henry David Thoreau. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, so basically, my what Thoreau taught me was that um, what Thoreau College taught me was that uh, if we arrive, if we prepare our own self to arrive into a community um, with integrity and interest in a group of people, we can actually trust that they that their inner questions are going to guide our pedagogy and you know there might be some uh less successful moments um i remember one student approached me one time and they were uncomfortable with the speech exercise because it was just too vulnerable Mm -hmm. to speak that much um and and that was you know unfortunate that they were uncomfortable but it was great that they told me Mm -hmm. and uh but mostly it's been really successful and that people have been, you know, uh, inspired, maybe a little bit on, on like the edge of their seat, but comfortable and, and learning a lot. Um, and and I think it, because it, it happened that way because, uh, when you're really present with other people and you have, you've, you're developing the capacities to think spiritually, to think in the invisible, you can, you can build your curriculum out of what is needed by the real people and not sort of, you know, come to a classroom with this whole prepared thing that doesn't actually relate to the reality in the room. Right. A st- teaching to a standard of some kind, yeah. a standardization. I think the standard ultimately is is the human being. Yeah. But you can't really approach that unless you're super interested in being present with the human being. <laughs> yeah, I think that's really well put. I mean, something, having been a, a Waldorf teacher at the high school level and, and really digging deeply into this, um, through Thoreau College, I mean, this this uh, one of the things that Thoreau College is bringing to this sphere of higher education is 
is this attention to the individual, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the reasons that the micro scale is important, um, the types of relationships that we're, we're, we're trying to have between instructors and students and between students themselves, um, and just the variety of activities as well, right? Mm -hmm. If you're doing you know, wilderness expeditions and art and you're doing self-governance and you're doing academic work and you're doing physical labor, um, people will show up in different ways, mm -hmm. right? The complexity of their beings themselves will, will be able to be expressed in some way. So, but I think it does start, like you say, with, the, with presence, right? Mm -hmm. the, um, everyone needs to be as present as possible. Exactly. Um, yeah. And what I also learned was that, um, I think you kind of were asking this, but I didn't quite touch on it. Uh, even though my, my own personal development is so devoted to anthroposophy and, and you know, supported by it, um, I don't need to teach anthroposophy in my classroom because that's, that's the thing about anthroposophy. It's not something you um, can teach it's actually a scaffolding to come to self-teaching. So I could bring these artistic exercises and these living thoughts into the classroom, but I only would really speak about anthroposophy when someone asked me. Mm -hmm. And um, rarely would I kind of like give a, you know, a lecture on Steiner or something. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think that there's, there's a tendency in in people who are not a, not familiar with anthroposophy or are familiar with it, but not like in a in a true way, um, who have some bias against it, to to see it as something that's inflexible and and um, dogmatic. Mm -hmm. But actually, because it really is only at its core about the freedom of thought and the way to freely think, like what is the structure I can help build my 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 inner soul forces so I can handle free thought mm -hmm. um it it doesn't actually require uh, a, a teaching a dogmatic teaching or like a doctrine teaching i can actually become anthroposophically cultivated in my own individual self mm -hmm. and then out of myself meet an, another person i don't need to meet them through anthroposophy and that that was really the, um, the, the reason why my classes worked because they were, they were living with the students more than they were with some, you know, philosophical structure that I was given by someone else. Yeah. So this, this idea of self-cultivation or like creating, you know, the, the capacity for, for freedom of thought, mm -hmm. right. As, as, as a goal of education is something that, that, you know, certainly is a theme of, of, of what we've been exploring here in the podcast. Um, last week we had a, a woman who was a teacher at a folk high school in Denmark, right? And, and the folk high schools there go back 150 years. They talk about a concept in Danish, which is called Danelse, which is basically a translation or a version of what's known in German as Bildung, mm. right? Not very, like, not the right word exists in English exactly, but something like self-cultivation or, yeah. or, you know, is uh, self-development in a way um, towards towards full humanity, towards towards you know mature humanity in some way. So, I'm wondering if you could, you know, what what does that take? What is <laughs> what does anthroposophy bring that allows you know has allowed you or or you might bring something in your class? You know, what what sort of practices or habits might build in that direction? Yeah, I would say. I mean, the first thing I think the pre like the pre precursor to this answer would be that um, anthroposophy has to be chosen freely by the person who studies it. 
it it can't be um, sort of imposed upon another person because it can't be understood unless it's chosen out of freedom, which is I think the 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 um, the unfortunate challenge that has been taking place about people who um, have prejudice against anthroposophy because it, without really choosing it freely, it's already non-accessible. So you can't really critique it unless you are um, freely engaging with it. Yeah, I observe that we don't. Again, it's a it's a category problem, right? Yeah. So we we have we you know societies we have schools, let's say where. There is like a statement of faith, a creed that you need to sign, right? That to, to come to the school. On the other hand, we have schools that are avowedly secular that have a pedagogy that is is based on something, right? You can't have a curriculum that's designed out of no principles whatsoever. Right. But often those those grounds are, are unexamined or hidden or or simply just not not well well articulated in some way. So to have a institution that's not demanding a statement of faith, right? This is what I believe before you come in, and yet is explicitly working out of some conception, an explicit mm -hmm. paradigm of some kind is we don't have a lot of examples of that in our yeah. society. <laughs> it's I mean, I think that question and how to actually logically support the answer to that question is extremely worthy striving. And something that's very important for, you know, the evolution of anthroposophy, actually, and probably a lot of institutions today. Um, but just to, to give an example of how anthroposophy is not, uh, it is, it is a, um, it's not bound by any uh, dogma, is that you can see how many anthroposophically inspired institutions are emerging around the world in every single um, continent, mm -hmm. and how they are so easily able to take anthroposophy and make it into their cultural, to, to merge it with their culture. That's kind of um, indicative of how all embracing it is and how not, um, how, how, how it's not something that's um, isolating to, to other things. Mm -hmm. In fact, it actually it, it can marry basically any other culture because it really is about the freedom of thought. Yeah. So just to, just to be a more yeah. specific example of that um, uh, we've had in the past here at Thoreau College actually a number of folks from from China where there is a yep. very like large and growing Waldorf school movement and one of the things that's attracting people to Waldorf there in China is that it is essentially a renaissance of traditional. Chinese philosophy and arts. Exactly. Right? Because money that had been eliminated during the Cultural Revolution and just the, the, the mad, crazy changes in China in the last hundred years, um, Waldorf schools are a place where people are actually practicing and learning calligraphy and studying Buddhism and Taoism and Confucianism and, and uh, yeah, the, the kind of mythological traditions. And they're able to be integrated right just smoothly into the Waldorf curriculum. Exactly. Yeah, I, I think that it's... Um it, like, if people want to understand anthroposophy, ask the question, how is that possible, what you just said? <laughs> and then, you know, that, that's a good gateway into it. Uh, and to return to your initial question, what, what's needed in order to really cultivate self, um, cultivate oneself, um, especially in the context of anthroposophy? Uh, I, I would actually say just what's needed to cultivate oneself. Mm -hmm. um, because anthroposophy kind of serves that to me, which is, um, first of all, I've had a lot of support in my life, both emotionally, financially, um, geographically. Like, 
I was I was born into a lucky situation where I've had a lot of freedom to be interested in myself and to um, take the time and have the opportunities to you know go uh, experience circus arts and um, <laughs> violin class and all these different things. So, of course, th- like this question really it, it has to it relates in some way to. Um, economic standing, unfortunately, mm-hmm. like how a human being has opportunity. Uh, but beyond that, I think that everyone, no matter where they stand financially, and also not even, it's not even just about finance, also about parents, like our parents, parents interested in their children, mm-hmm. our teachers a- asking, inviting the potential of a student forth, or are they not really, you know, there for the student? They're just there to get a job done. And are they, are they able to do that in the context of life as it is? Exactly. Yeah. Um, but I think that on a, on a very basic human level, um, to have a humble interest in yourself, to, to really value, um, the fact that you are a self and to not, um, to not be quick to make conclusions about yourself, but also not, um, lazy in in asserting and understanding things about yourself and having that sort of walking that line between um conviction of self and humble flexibility and looking through this like on that line looking at all the things in in your life that can give you answers and opportunities um and i think the the thing that has taught me the most about myself is um, working with other people mm-hmm. and experience teaching actually like after almost after every single Thoreau class I taught I I would drive home to Chicago it's a, like a four and a half hour drive and I would write an essay I would speak an essay into my phone about all the things I learned through that class <laughs> and teaching <laughs> and it was because it was so inspiring to experience a spiritual reality unfolding between me and my students that was actually um, like the fruits of my labor with myself because I, I couldn't I couldn't come to that classroom if I hadn't worked on myself so yeah. like e- experiencing this social relationship and in, in the the light of humble self-interest and um, a sense of personal conviction and flexibility that was like just you know life-changing really yeah well i just also observed one of the kind of habits and practices you just illustrated there and just taking that time and you know maybe thank goodness for the four-hour drive back to chicago right to reflect on what has just happened right Mm -hmm. you've tried something out you're you know you're bringing something on the at the bleeding edge of pedagogical experimentation, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, to take the time to to really reflect on that and to and to like to record those thoughts. I mean, that's that's a part of a lot of different spiritual practices, but certainly very important anthroposophy mm-hmm. in my experience. To on a daily basis, regular basis, whatever you're doing, to to take that time to reflect on on, on the practice, right? It's part of that dynamics of praxis that you you mentioned. Completely, and yeah, actually, a huge part of my PhD work has. Um, brought reflection into pedagogy. So one of the things that I, I do is if I make an artwork, I will then write about the artwork and then um, write about the writing of the artwork 
to show to actually well to show it, it just becomes a document of expression but it also I realized that through this distillation process of reflection you almost like um, step higher and higher into the spiritual world and into objective thought because when, when you're really like in the object itself you're very immediate and that's awesome because that, that's a certain form of intimacy but then you want to step back from it and observe it from a higher vantage point and then you can look at that that reflection and the original object in unity and see well what's another higher vantage point i can see by bringing these two initial documents into relationship and that kind of like you almost step further and further back and higher and higher up and you get a um a profound insight into the original nature of that object fantastic well lucian our time has flown by here. Um, we are so lucky to have you here today and so lucky to have had you part of the Thoreau College programs the last couple thank of you. years. And so thank you for your time with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been equally as amazing as Thoreau. <laughs> <laughs> All right.